This is the Aftermarket Radio Network. All right, welcome everyone to yet another episode of Diagnosing the Aftermarket A to Z. I'm Matt Fonslow, and I would like if everyone could welcome back one of my favorite guests, one of my good friends who has probably probably my biggest competition next to you know Joe Rogan, of course, the Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. Sean Patrick Tipping, he is mobile diagnostic tech for ST, which probably means Sean Tipping, mobile diagnostics and programming. He's also an instructor at Century College. And today we are going to get loaded on the air. Oh, wait, no, <laughs> sorry. My notes wrong. Let me read. <laughs> We're going to talk about circuit loading. Um, the reason being, I do get some messages from time to time and some of them with requests about uh, topics to cover. And we've covered on other discussions, both on here and on yours, about circuit loading and, and testing load testing circuits. And I think I had made a comment about almost being able to determine a technician's skill level with electricity based on their test drawer. And if it has a bunch of various sized lamps or lamp bulbs in it. So, you know, they got a headlight, they got a, you know, whatever, 194 or something like that. Thank you, Sean, for joining me. Of course. Uh, thank you for having me. As always, you're uh dropping that uh, level of guest back down <laughs> towards my level. So, <laughs> well, when you have Dutch Silverstein on, there's no only one way to go down. <laughs> well, and Paul Danner, Justin Morgan. So Liz Perkins, uh, I'm, I'm bringing it all down, but I'm okay with that. We're going to have fun. So, I mean, Morgan didn't bring it up that much. <laughs> Liz, Liz and Paul. Yeah. No, for, for real though, I've been enjoying the show, uh, listening to it recently. It's uh, it's been very enjoyable. It's all about the guests. Didn't bring it up that much. <laughs> Liz, Liz, and Paul. Yeah. No, for, for real though, I've been enjoying the show, uh, listening to it recently. It's uh, it's been very enjoyable. It's all about the guests. Oh yeah, of course. I, I hear enough of you already. So. <laughs> yeah, I think everybody's heard enough. <laughs> <laughs> That's what most of the messages say. Sean, you know how Napa supports your auto care center through national marketing? Napa will build upon the already successful know-how for all campaign and promote auto care offerings and services for do-it-for-me customer support through sales driver promotions, optimized targeted media and local markets and proven channels, give your repair facility an online presence on Napa Online, generating millions of views per month. If you're interested in partnering with Napa Auto Care and capitalizing on the Napa know-how for all national marketing campaign, contact your servicing Napa Auto Parts store. Yeah, dude. So I don't know if it's like this cross country, but I know here around where I'm at, Twin Cities, Minnesota, I've always enjoyed going to Napa stores. So there's one local to me in Forest Lake. Shout out to Fred, Forest Lake, Napa. And, and that's exactly it. So it's an independent franchise as opposed to the like big corporate structure of like an auto zone or Riley's, which whatever they, you know, they do a fine job too, whatever. But the, the Napa store, the one that is close to where I grew up in forest, like it's the same counter people 
that were there when I started out as a technician, when I was like wow. 19 years old to this day, not everybody, but you recognize this, the same faces in there. And I mean, that's saying something for any business, but I can guarantee you that is not the O'Reilly's or the auto zone. <laughs> You'll see a new person in there every month that you go in there. Uh, and that makes a difference for me. Like I'm going in there to get parts. Like I know these guys, you know, I know they're, going to treat me right. I'm going to do the same for them. And that that's just one thing about Napa, at least locally that I've really appreciated is the, the franchise aspect of it. So that's impressive. I mean, that's really impressive to have the same basic yeah. core. Working. Exactly. I mean, that's like, any, yeah, like you said, any small business, be it auto repair shop or just right. anything. You don't have to list them all off when you got the familiar faces, especially if they're good at their jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for for sure. It was as the years went on, I was I was actually just routinely impressed by it. I'm like, how do you, especially in today's world, like how do you retain an employee for you know coming up on a couple decades now? Like, <laughs> what what is the magic yeah. sauce there? I don't know, and I gotta believe finding good counter people is rough. Sure, that have just enough automotive, you know, car knowledge, repair knowledge, catalog knowledge, and also interacting with not just like the general public, but also shop owners or technicians or service advisors, all that person, all those personalities. And then, you know, there's the product offerings now, I think are so much larger than years and years ago where they had certain these certain lines like all their brake parts were going to be by this vendor or this manufacturer and that's not necessarily the case anymore and they got so many degrees of products that's impressive that's really impressive definitely so i got a message uh from somebody about elaborating more on electrical testing specifically when it comes to circuit loading load testing Mm -hmm. circuits and how to do it, how to know what size bulb or what to use to load with, when to load. And I I just felt like that's a good topic. And I felt like, you know, being the accomplished electrical tech you are, as well as the, the education background and having input from your experience uh, teaching, I hate to say kids, like it's so easy to sit and go, you know, you're, you're teaching at a, a college. It's so easy to say, you know, teaching the kids. And uh-huh. I, I got to believe that it, a lot of your classroom is not kids anymore. It's people looking at a second career because the first one doesn't exist anymore or didn't pan out. Yep. I have students that are older than me, I think think every year that I've taught, maybe maybe an exception on one, but otherwise I'll have at least one student that's older than me. And the first year I did that, I, that was, it actually kind of took me back a little bit. I, I felt very strange about that, but they turn out to be the most respectful, best students you have. Of course, they've got a little bit more life experience and perspective and focus and so I, I wish I had a whole classroom full of <laughs> them, but yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a whole, whole gambit of people, but I'll tell you what, that is definitely something that I've noticed. You don't always think about it again, once you've been through this for a while, 
if you're going to test a circuit, you just grab a tool because you know that is the tool that that's the right tool to test that circuit, right? You know when to grab that 194 bulb, or you know when to grab the test light or the headlight bulb, or the meter or whatever because it's right for that application. But trying to teach a student what's the right application for this here, it's not necessarily such an easy thing to teach, right? Because there's so many different circuits on so many different cars. What do you use for the situation? I'll, I'll give you these eight different ways to test a circuit. Well, which one do I use for this particular circuit on this particular car? And that, that, that is very tough because I don't think there's one concise answer for that. In general, I can't think of too many cases where you're going to test open circuit, meaning you unplug something and you check for specifically like a, a power feed and a ground. There's maybe signals that you know, if they're if they're putting some kind of a bias voltage, then you might be looking at that open circuit. That's fine. But mm-hmm. the actual feed and ground for a, de- a load carrying device, you really you're really not going to ever want to test that open circuit. No, I'll get you in trouble. Yeah. And depending on the situation, it may not be prudent to just do the voltage drop. Like now you may want to substitute a load to verify the the feeds and you know as an example you're replacing a fuel pump you know the fuel pump's bad but it, we'll just say it doesn't work because maybe one of the brushes is just gone mm-hmm. evaporated you can plug the fuel pump in and cycle the key all you want it's not going to load anything cuz the fuel pump isn't spinning right and yes most likely if you put the fuel pump on it will fix the car but but you know darn well once in a while, you're going to bolt the fuel pump on. It will fix it for a few weeks or a couple months. And then it's getting towed back and it's got problems. So in that case, the first time you should have load tested that circuit. Fuel pumps. I, I suppose we could go specs and all that. But honestly, to figure out what to do, you could just pull up your wiring schematic. Or I suppose if you really, I don't know, maybe... Uh, I don't want to say backyard, but maybe not quite as thorough as it should be. You could just look at the fuse block and the fuse ratings. Like pull pull mm-hmm. up, look at the fuse diagram on the fuse block if it's got one. If it's a Ford, forget about it. But <laughs> you, you can look at it and say, oh, here's the fuel pump fuse. Yep. It's rated for whatever, 20 amps. Uh-huh. Okay. I'm not saying you necessarily have to load the circuit for 20 amps. But you should probably at least load it for 10 amps. Yep. At least. Mm-hmm. And um, that's where you would, you know, what would pull about 10 amps in headlamps? Maybe one, yeah. maybe two. It's funny you and, bring that up about fuel pumps because we're actually in the fuel system course of the program. Like right now, today, we were in the shop for that and we're doing fuel pump amperage. And that's one of the things we go through is let's measure the amperage of the fuel pump. And one of the questions that I bring up and that comes up in the shop is what's normal. And of course that depends on a lot of different vehicles. And and now we're introducing three phase two, which is a whole nother thing, but you know, just your traditional brush brush style DC motor. What's the normal amperage that we should see when we do this. And I talk about the waveforms and let's look for dropouts, but What's the right level of amperage? And again, yeah, that's the thing. We can get an idea by the fuse, but it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to vary vehicle to vehicle until you kind of build up some experience and some known goods in your memory banks or documentation. But 
yeah, looking at the circuit protection is definitely a good way to go. Do you have a rule of thumb or do you go by anything on like if the fuse is rated for 20 amps, what normally is on the circuit? Is it half? Is it a third? It varies, I would say, and <laughs> this is going to sound like a Dodge. I'm sorry, not Dodge vehicle with dodging the question. That's actually a pretty good range, a third to a half. And I suppose it gets in a little bit to what's all on the circuit. Because sure. not, not every fuse is dedicated to just the fuel pump. It's probably more likely a fuel pump than other things. But once in a while, you're going to have one that that fuse feeds like the entire fuel system. So the fuel yep. injectors, the fuel pump. Okay, well, that fuse is probably rated a little bit higher than a dedicated fuse for just the fuel pump. So there, the third area is probably a pretty good range. But for for an expected, if you're looking, if we're talking about expecting, if we're talking about just testing, I guess I kind of want to make sure it it can pull or that I can verify that circuit will pull at least half, if not even a little bit more. You know, I'm not talking about trying to be super exact. I don't, I'm not trying to dial anything in and go, you know, well, it flows nine amps. It's rated for, you know, it's on a 20 amp fuse or yeah, 20 amp fuse. I got to go grab some more stuff and start loading this down. It wouldn't hurt you to do it, but okay. What's the probability of this thing flows nine amps, but it won't flow 12. Right. I mean, you got 12 amps. I'm sorry, you got nine amps. The headlight's really bright. If you wanted to, you could put the your voltmeter on it and go, and it's still 12 and a half volts, 13 volts. You know, I got a maintainer on it. It's 14 volts. Chances are, it's probably pretty good. I mean, when stuff goes bad, it goes... Yep. Case in point, we were going to record this a while ago, and we put it off. I'm glad we did, because I had a car, a vehicle, I shouldn't say a car. I had a vehicle in uh, Monday, 1998. Dodge Ram 2500 with a Cummins. It's a sanding truck. So it has this hopper in the back that's full of sand and salt mixture. And they drive around and it's just like, depending on where you live, what we're talking about. (laughs) Um, This hopper at the very back has this plate that spins and it throws the sand and salt around. Well, most of it throws behind it, but it throws it everywhere. Mm Mm-hmm. And Minnesota, most of these vehicles were destroyed by oxidation. And this thing pretty much is destroyed. I, I'm waiting to hear or see, drive by it one day, and it's just made, you know, this big letter V where the frame has folded in half. <laughs> That's what I'm waiting for. This thing is a rust bucket. And I don't want to say like it's a pile of crap or anything, but it's just, it is what it is. It's been eaten away by corrosion, rust. Yep. And the complaint is, is has no exterior lights. None of the exterior lights work. And those that are versed with Dodge pickups in that range, age range, year range, I guess, and live in a environment that promotes oxidation probably already know what's wrong with this thing. It ends up, the there's a ground. So what happens is, you know, you're going to start te- checking voltage at a headlight. Mm-hmm. Well, to get to them was kind of a pain. So I unplug it and the lights come on very dimly. Plug it in, sure. they go out. Unplug one of the headlights and they come on. Vi- I mean, it's dim. Mm-hmm. 
And the only reason I notice is because my face is right close to the headlight. Otherwise, in, you know, my shop area is pretty darn bright. You'd never see it. Gotcha. Turn the headlights off, or not turn the headlights off, turn the lights in the shop off. And it's just this eerie glow. <laughs> it's, it's not a long story, but it will flow some current. If I unplug the other headlight, the front lights come on, the, like the parking lights. Uh-huh. And it turns out they're not as bright as they should be, but they'd be bright enough to trick you into thinking they're working, right? I mean, you wouldn't know unless you voltage dropped them that they're they're really not where they need to be. Mm-hmm. But it would, I don't think anybody during an inspection would go, oh, the parking lights don't work. So there's a ground underneath the battery. I don't want to say really on the frame rail, but it's on a you know pretty good heavy piece of the body where it bolts to the frame. And what happens is, you know, and I understand we're in a podcast, audio only, but it's an eyelet with maybe a dozen wires. Mm-hmm. So you have a dozen ground wires going to this single eyelet. And the eyelet itself isn't really that corroded. And where it mounts to the body isn't really that corroded. But what's corroded is the wires that are exposed. The copper that's exposed mm-hmm. from where that eyelet kind of has those what we want to call them like fingers or whatever that kind of clamp around the insulation. Yep. So from that point where the wires are exposed from the insulation are, you know, quote unquote bare to where they go to the crimp of the eyelet that's heavily corroded and kind of broken away, but they kind of make a connection through one another Mm -hmm. and they, it only acts up when it's uh, loaded. Sure. Yeah. There's only so many, uh, well, depending on how you want to look through it, look at it, but so many electrons that can make it through that little, uh, that little doorway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for this discussion, that's perfectly <laughs> perfect. Yeah. So fix the ground, make a new eyelet, and uh, that fixes the front lights. The front lights work really good. The rear lights still didn't work. And the same thing, a really eerie glow. It turned out that when they installed the trailer hitch, wiring they used like one of those um might have been hoppy t harness like it tees into the brake lights so you mm-hmm. unplug the brake light ho- line connectors plug this in and then you got at least the rear lights for the seven pin that th- they laid the wires across not the frame itself but where um there's kind of like this cross member it's mm-hmm. fairly fairly sharp and it just cut through Maybe it's shorted from time to time and they just kept throwing fuses at it until it didn't need fuses anymore. And they're mm-hmm. either driving around with the lights not working or it oxidized enough to where it didn't matter. <laughs> you <could> lay right <laughs> on the metal and it didn't matter. But yeah, so uh, a couple of instances where I'm verifying stuff with a headlight back there because I didn't have uh, a ground. So I had I, I like those um, jumper wire reels. So yes, it's, you know, they're flat, they're van. magnetic. Yep. They got yep. black and uh, red wires with little alligators on them. I love those yep. things. They're like hundred percent 15, 20 feet long or something like that. Maybe longer. Maybe they're 30. I say it's my poor man's power probe. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I got one clip on the battery positive and one clip going to one side of my headlight and then the other jumper wire from my headlight to the ground and then i'm laying under the car looking for an issue and when i find it you know i can jump 
ground or whatever I need to do to see if my headlight comes on. And yep. then, and also in this case, guy, yeah, I, I don't mean to be keep talking about this. Sorry. That the, the other thing with this is the rear lights ground through that eyelet underneath the battery that I just repaired. So okay. I'm now still a little concerned that somehow, some way, as much as I cut the wires back, as much as I tried to clean them with a, a wire brush, as much as I tried to twist them perfectly and get them in that eyelet and crimp them, that maybe, just maybe, I have a bad connection on my repair. So I have mm. to be able to prove that my repair can flow current from the back of the vehicle. Sure. And that's where the headlight comes in. Like, okay, if this thing will power up a headlight, my ground is good. My repair to my eyelet is good. Mm-hmm. Now the now I know the problem is between... So, like, I would... I checked at the headlight... Or, sorry, at the taillights, bad. Mm-hmm. Move up the harness. There was a lucky, lucky me, a, a connector back there. In like, C310. Back probe it. My light comes on. So, I know from that connector back is where my problem is. And I know that my repair underneath the battery, my eyelet is good. It flows current that, you know, whatever my headlights flowing six, eight amps. So I know I'm good to go. That's important. That's really, really important. Did I need a headlight? Probably not. 3157 probably would have been enough. But it proves it to you. That's visual representation that the current can flow. That's the best. Yep. Yeah. Those, those frame (laughs) rusted out issues are always interesting. Because I think a lot of technicians, myself included at times, don't really think of the frame as something that can lose a ground, but it can, or it can have a a less than optimal ground. And that actually happened on one of my old, I had a 97 Chevy pickup truck, actually not that long ago, (laughs) I had a 97 pickup truck. And that's what happened is the, um, the ground strap to the frame just fell away again, because of salt and corrosion and stuff that's here in Minnesota. And so, you know, one day the fuel pump doesn't work and I did some tests and loaded some circuits and found, okay, I don't have a ground to the fuel pump, but not only that, because the the fuel pump ground goes off the fuel pump and just has an eyelet on the back of the frame back on the bed side of the truck. Yeah. It just, it doesn't have a ground, but the frame didn't have a ground. And so I had to follow it all the way back to the, to the strap. So I, uh, I drove it down to school with some jumper cables going from the body of the alternator to the, to the frame. <laughs> and I, I was like, I, I wanted to see, I was like, okay, let's, let's have the students look at this. Cause this is a really good one for students to go through to see, Hey, can we, can we work through this? I'm not going to tell them what it is. Like, let's just figure out why this truck doesn't start. Cause I just pulled it in the shop, took my jumper cables out. And then that was the project for a group in the shop. And it was a very difficult one for them because it's just, it's not intuitive that the frame of the vehicle of the truck could not be grounded, but it was such a good lesson. Like, you know, here's the things that can happen, but here's how you check for it. Here's the, when you were talking about with a connector and you proved it out, we can be strategic about it. And that's what I like about electric is, is like, it plays by a set of rules that have to be. And as long as you understand those rules, you can win. That's the, that's the best part about it that I like about electrical. Yeah. And I think it's one of those cases where, you know, I probably could have videoed it and shown that with a corroded ground, if I'd have used my quote unquote computer safe test light 
I could have been chasing my tail, mm-hmm. especially if I'm te- checking open circuit. Or uh, in this case, it was open circuit, but not because I made it open circuit. It's open circuit on its own. Sure. And through the corroded ground with my computer safe test light that only draws, you know, maybe 200, 250 milliamps, a quarter amp. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's nothing. A severely corroded wire will flow a quarter amp or 250 milliamps, no problem. So that's why we want to stress these things out. Same with the voltmeter, right? It doesn't stress the circuit at all. Yep. Can can I tell you, I don't mean to interrupt, but... No, I, please interrupt. I'm talking way too much. I do a demonstration with my students when we're getting ready to go out to the shop for circuit testing. And so I take a jump pack on the, just I do it on a desk in front of the students. And I have a voltmeter and I connect the black cable or, you know, the clamp for the jump pack to the black lead of the voltmeter. And I hold the red lead of the voltmeter touching the metal in my left hand. And I touch the red clamp of the jump pack with my right hand. So I've got a voltmeter in one hand and a red clamp in the other. And I have the student read the voltage and it reads 12 volts, right? At the tip of my finger through my body, but and, and then we measure the resistance with the ohm meter too. And, and I'm like, am I going to flow any current? Obviously not. Or not any usable current, but what's the meter going to show you? Is it's 12 volts potential through my body. We got to be aware of that if yep. we're going to be using a meter in an open circuit. And I mean, we pretty much tell them at that point, like, you're very rarely going to do this. Maybe checking a five volt reference, that's when you can use it. But if it's an, it's an output, that's doing some work, we're not doing this. And that's another thing that I try to stress upon my students is what is the purpose of this circuit, right? Is it meant for a sensor? Is it meant for, you know, a network? Is it just voltage? Is it data? Or is this for an output? Is this something that's doing work? Is it a headlight or a motor or a solenoid? We've got to treat it differently. We've got to test it differently. And then that's where the choice and tools comes into play, but you got to understand the purpose of the circuit before you can do that. Yep. Yeah. It would have been the same with a ohm meter. Yes. The ohm meter would have showed a very good ground, uh, low resistance because it's not stressing that it's not stressing it at all. You know, it's putting out, I think the one meter I measured was like four or four and a half volts. And, um, you know, on the 12 volt circuit, 14 volt circuit, you know, the impedance being so low, it's just not, it's not loading that circuit. Not sure the impedance really matters in that case. It's just the amount of voltage it's putting on is extremely low mm-hmm. compared to what, you know, and then the the current ability to provide current out of the nine volt battery is going to be pretty low. So yeah, that, I thought that was a good, a uh, good example. I had another Chevy pickup, but quite a bit, quite a bit newer than um, the one you're talking about. Mm -hmm. The complaint was a misfire. It was not firing the coils on the passenger side. Yeah. Left side of the block. I know where it is. Yes, (laughs) sir. Yes, sir. That's exactly. So there's a, a ground on the block, the engine block kind of by the starter on the driver's Mm -hmm. side. And that fails kind of the same way where it's not so much that the eyelet itself is corroded or the block is corroded. It's where the wires are exposed to get to the crimp corrode away. Mm -hmm. And they don't necessarily corrode all the way wide open. They fail under load because I drove this thing in 
it didn't skip a beat. It ran mm-hmm. great. So I let it sit there for a while watching, you know, got my scan tool on there and I'm tooling around. And then I kind of noticed some misfires popping up uh, specifically on cylinders two and six. And you come to realize, like, you try to scope anything on the ignition on that side, nothing's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you scope the ground. Well, what's kind of interesting is when a coil was not firing, or I should, no, not firing, when a coil wasn't charging, mm-hmm. which isn't a lot, but the ground would be okay. And once it mm-hmm. started, once it started pulling some current, the ground is gone. Yep. So it was kind of an interesting waveform. And, you know, really only happened when the engine RPM would slow way down from the misfires that would get enough gap. You know, I don't want to make it sound like it was a square wave, but it was sporadic. You could see where it looked like I had some a ground. And then once it got loaded. Sure. So that was, that was interesting. Have you dealt with, I'm sure you have, the generation newer than the one you're talking about. I'm thinking of maybe like 08 and up Chevy truck where they have, they had issues. I think it's even newer than that, like up to 14 and 15. I've seen a few of them where they had issues with the negative battery cable, like the whole cable assembly itself from the battery. And then it had a a body ground, but down to the backside of the block where there was some voltage drop issues with that. Have you had any luck with like real, effective measurements and testing on catching those because honestly i've replaced a few but it was just off a service bulletin and it fixed the problem and i was happy that it did but i I haven't had a whole lot of luck with testing on those to like really say oh there's the problem to go and say oh there is the problem i guess the ones that i could pick out and some of them I don't want to make it sound like I just pick them out every freaking time. Sometimes I just do it out of general principle because I kind of know now. But the uh-huh. first one, the first one I ran into kicked my butt a little bit. Same. Yeah. It was intermittent. Anyway, problems too. Yeah. Yeah. Right. What ended up happening? And I think this fits. I think it fits what we're talking about. It's, it's circuit loading, but it's different. Mm hmm. And this involves using an inductive high amp current probe. What I did was I clamped it around the, uh, in this case, whatever was the easiest one, I think was, might've been the battery positives easier to get to than the negative. And I got big enough jaws to get around them all. But I just started hammering the starter over and over and over and over and over. And not so much, not so much like cranking it until it starts. I wanted to hit it so that the starter engages and starts to turn and then I'd let off and I over and over and over and over. And I started to notice that my current level started dropping my stall current. So I guess what I'm talking about here is if you're sco- using a lab scope with an inductive current probe, low or high amp, doesn't matter. We're looking at an electric motor, DC motor. If you were to take an ohm meter to that motor, it would measure extremely low resistance. It's almost like a dead short to ground, pretty much a dead short to ground until it starts spinning and you get some counter electromotive force. So when you first engage that electric motor, you get a huge rush of current. The, mm-hmm. So stall current will be called stall current. It'll be called inrush current, startup current. I, I think are kind of the main names. 
And a lot of times that will be like two to three times the fused rating of the circuit. Sure. So if we're looking at a fuel pump and we're cycling it on and off, on and off with a key or with some sort of a device, a switch, whatever, where we hit the fuel pump a few times to start it spinning, that if it's rated for, we'll just say it's fused for 20 amps, you'll see spikes, 40 amps, no problem. Mm-hmm. over and over and over and over and over and over. And it's so fast, it doesn't, the fuse doesn't care, right? Because fuses don't necessarily blow from the actual amps. It's the, the heat. heat, right? So yeah. it needs some time, uh-huh. which I know that statement kind of sounds almost like an oxymoron, but it needs time to build up the heat to blow the fuse. Heat blows the fuse. Heat created by the current flow. In this case, the current is not there long enough to pop the fuse. Mm-hmm. So, a lazy test. You want to replace a fuel pump, or you're suspicious of a fuel pump's got low pressure, and you want to verify power feeding grounds. If you're lazy like me, you're not raising the vehicle up and checking for power feeding ground at the fuel pump connector. Mm-hmm. You're taking your low amp current probe and your lab scope, and you're hitting the fuel pump over and over and over. Don't do it just once or twice, do it like 20 times. 30 times, just bang, 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 bang. And you want to see that stall current being like, you know, you know, 30 amps, 40 amps, bang, bang, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40, 40. Sure. Every time. If that fuel pump circuit is flowing 40 amps, do you really think you have bad contacts <laughs> in the fuel pump really? Do you really right. think there yeah. might be a bad ground to the frame rail? Probably not. Exactly. So same case with this cable. Starter pulls... 600, 800, 1,000 amps on that initial inrush. Okay, one time momentary is not a good test. But if you do it over and 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 you start getting that thing hot, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden it's not, you know, before I was hitting 800 every time. When I was towards the end of the test, you know, my wrist was getting tired. (laughs) I was more like 200. All right, all right. And then I knew... You know, I had an issue with uh, current flow. And in this sure. case, on this, I think on this vehicle, the complaint was slow crank times intermittently. Okay. Just, you know, roar, 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 roar. And I think you would walk away from it, come back, and then it would start up. Mm-hmm. And, but it was wildly intermittent, wildly intermittent. And the first yeah. thing you do is a starter. It's like, yep. I don't know what to do. It starts every time. Yep. And after that, and then he's like, uh, you know, and it was weeks, weeks later. He's like, I don't know if you guys got it or maybe I got a bad starter. Like, yeah, I got a rough time with a bad starter scenario. Can you drop it off and leave it? Yep. Okay. And so what am I going to do to test this? And he got the leads down on the starter and all that. And that would work too. But this, we could just see it. It should hit high amps, high amps over and over and over. Doesn't. Mm-hmm. It did. And then it started not. You know, start crank, maybe crank it over for 30 seconds and then start doing the stall current test. It's like it should hit what, six, eight hundred amps, thousand, depending on your current probe. Yep. Thousand amps, whatever. It should hit it every time. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't, you got problems. And now, granted, it's not sitting there like it doesn't hit a thousand amps. Oh, bad cable. You just know it can't flow current. So I got bad connections, something, right? Or a battery is not capable of. Delivery. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's also so, totally possible. But it, I mean, it sets you on the path. And that's what I got out of it. I got put on the path. 
And then, um, yeah, it was that cable specifically. And I think not on the vehicle when I had it off that, you know, I decided that had to be the culprit. I think I put it in like a vice and I just cranked on it and just green stuff started pouring out of the, where the crimps to the battery terminal. Sure. Yeah. I've had a few of those, uh, your weird like communication random issues and GM's got a bunch of service bulletins on them now. That's a great way to look at it is to really, really stress that circuit. I mean, that's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about yep. loading these circuits, stressing them out, making them do what they were designed or maybe even a little bit beyond to see yep. what's the, the status of, of this conductor. Here, here's an interesting question. And I mean, maybe, maybe I have the answer to it, but I'll ask it anyways. So the heat that's developed in a conductor, like a cable or a wire or a fuse, what, what is the heat actually from? Like, I mean, we say, yeah, it's, it's the current flowing through it, but what's actually making the heat to pop a fuse or to make a cable hot that's going to a starter or, you know, something that has more resistance than it should? What, what's that coming from? I, I think the safe... I think I'm going to go with the safe answer is essentially friction. I think that I think that's what I'm going to go with because kinetic, kinetic energy from friction. Yeah, I think that is probably the best way to think about it. That you know the wires have resistance, and because they have resistance, they oppose current flow, and you get a voltage drop. It becomes a load. Mm-hmm. Right. So we, we usually don't talk about wires as a load, but they kind of are a load. They're just a very, very, very minor portion of it normally. Yeah, or at least they should be a very right. minor portion. Some cases, depending on, you know, maybe conductor selection or, you know, entropy, they become a load. And therefore, because of that, they, they're going to do some kind of work. And the work is heat. Yeah, that's what we're going with. Okay. I like Until it. somebody yeah. writes me and says, hey, you're an idiot. You just did this one <laughs> podcast about it. But yeah, I mean, it's doing work and that's what it's going to do. Sure. You had, uh, I think when we talked about doing this, you talked about a term, uh, ampacity. Well, I am not going to take credit for that because okay. before we had talked, I was talking to... Jim Wilson of Standard Motor Products. Jim Wilson of FlatRater.com. He's a freaking genius. He's a genius in every sense of the term. Super nice guy. He, I think he'll be at Vision. So if you had a chance to rub elbows with him, I do it. Okay. Say hi to him. Shake his hand. I mean, I want. I do. I guess I want to take a minute or two to just break this guy up because he was a GM flat rate tech dealer tech. Mm-hmm. And he had a website called flatrater.com where every week he'd put up a case study and he'd start out like towards the beginning of the week would be the, the complaints and his initial testing. And then he'd kind of leave it up to the group, the members on a forum to come up with a either a test strategy or using the data he provided, come up with a diagnosis. And then he'd follow it up towards the end of the week with this is what it was. This is how I got to it. This is the data I was looking at. This is how I rejected this, rejected that. Well, you know, it's all GM, but, but a lot of those techniques translate to almost everything. Mm -hmm. 
that is where I learned so much about just sitting for a few minutes in the driver's seat with the scan tool and looking at data and looking at pertinent data and just kind of thinking about how how it works, I guess, if, it, if that makes sense. You know, that's probably where I learned diagnosing catalyst, restricted catalytic converters using field trims. And he explains his thought process and it was just great. It's, it changed, it changed my life. I was, you know, I have reputation for scope stuff and I love scopes and will use a scope probably as long as I'm doing this for a living. I need the scope. I need to be able to see things a certain way. So it works in my head, but he helped me not be so scope dependent that I could start looking at scan tool stuff and start thinking about things in terms of probabilities. Like what really, what is the probability that this is a problem? I mean, right. It could be, it could be, but probably not really. (laughs) So yeah. Uh, Anyways, we're talking on the phone and I bring up that I wanted to do this podcast with you. He's like, Oh, well, have you ever, you should talk about impacity or have you ever heard of impacity? I'm like, what? It's like impacity. I'm pretty sure I've never heard of that. He's like, Oh, it's super common. All the credit goes to him for this. And so, yeah, I had to dive in and see what the heck he was talking about. And yeah, yeah. In the electrician world, they use this a lot to choose the conductor for a given circuit because they cannot under, you know, they don't want to use too heavy of a conductor for money, save money, right? Because it's made out of copper. Yep. Two, they definitely do not want to under, undersize this um, conductor either, you know? Yeah. So if it's going to be a 20 amp circuit, they do not want to put a 14 gauge wire on that sucker because mm-hmm. the breaker will not blow in time. <laughs> okay. So you said you've done a lot of research in this. Maybe I'll kick it back to you, but yeah, definitely. You should talk <laughs> not, about ampacity because not, not a lot of research. I did some reading and basically it's the amount of heat a conductor can. Well, it, it's about the amount of current a conductor can carry on a regular basis without going above a certain temperature. So it's about the current and it's about the temperature of the conductor and it has to do with the, the, the type of metal for the conductor, the strands, the insulation, like that all plays a role, ambient temperature, which I was like, well, I was thinking about, it, I'm like, well, I wonder what they have to consider for a wire that's running along the side of a block that's, you know, hundreds of degrees hotter than in the vehicle. Well, that has to play a role in the heat of the conductor and all that stuff. But yeah, Yeah. it all has to do with the temperature and what it can safely do for what it's meant to do. Pretty, pretty interesting stuff and a different way to look at the rating of a conductor, but it, it all goes down. I mean, you can simply put it as the size of the wire, right? And again, we were looking at a fuel pump with my students today and we were scoping amperage for a fuel pump that was the goal and they came up to me and they have the back seat up and the fuel pumps right there it's got four wires and they're like well, we can't find a diagram and i helped them find a diagram because that was you know that's part of the learning process but i was like well let's just look at this and see we understand what we're after we're after current and so we can go after power or ground so 
one of two wires and there's four wires, do you think we can pick out which one it is? Like, just logically, let's think about this. And I just sort of nudged them and they figured it out like, oh, okay, those two wires going to the level sensor, much smaller than the wires going to the fuel pump. Okay, what are these circuits for? What's the purpose? Why are they bigger? Carries more current, right? And so we see it all the time, but yeah, it's not always something you think of in the engineering of a vehicle, I guess. Yeah, and I think you could, if you wanted to, you could leverage that a little bit if you wanted. Mm -hmm. That one of those situations where the fuse for the circuit is, you know, 10 amps. But the wire where you're at that you're going to test is, you know, 18 gauge, 20 gauge. Well, that portion may not flow 10 amps, mm -hmm. right? Maybe it's like more of a parallel type circuit where that, that branch will only be flowing about an amp. And you can tell that by the, the conductor size. So instead of, uh, well, it's right, it's got a 20 amp fuse, better go grab the headlight. I mean, it might do it temporarily, but I don't know if I would recommend that. That wire is going to start getting hot. Yep. You can look at that and say, well, geez, you know, it's 22 gauge or 20 gauge or 18 gauge. Like I could probably test that with one or two amps and then I'll grab my, you know, 194 bulb or my 3157. That, that was a question I was going to ask you was, what do you have in your drawer? What, what do you have in your test drawer? Yeah, well, so I do the mobile thing, so I have a bag, but close enough. Um, and so I have three different test lights. One's about 150 milliamps. One's about 300 milliamps. I only know that because I measured them. And then one, I stuck a bulb in there that's about an amp. And um, I found I use that very sparingly because it melts the <laughs> plastic <laughs> of the test light. If you leave it, if you just leave it on, it gets too hot. So I know the amperage of those. And then I have a headlight bulb. And for the majority of stuff that takes care of the ranges that I need. And then you could add multiple headlight bulbs, but I guess I don't find myself needing that too often. Yeah. I don't, I don't run into a situation where I need that too often, but you could, you could add, you know, more yeah. parallel. The, that sounds very close to what I have. I I do not have the really low impedance test light. Never bought one. Uh, I have the Harbor Freight one that you know pulls like that three four hundred milliamps or so. Mm -hmm. It's a real bulb in there. And then I have the one ninety four bulb that I figure pulls roughly an amp. Thirty one fifty seven pulls roughly two amps. Uh, and I took the connector right, so I bought the pigtail if you will that they go in and you know powers up both filaments and then like you I, I have two headlights two sealed bean headlights like a 4156 and a 6054 I think okay just big sealed beams mm -hmm. once in a great while I will have to put them now we got to be careful how I word this I will put them in series with a circuit, but they will be in parallel with themselves. Sure. If that makes sense. <laughs> yes. So that I get the, the current flow I'm looking for, but they're technically in series with the circuit. So Sure. Yep. But that's, if I really want to stress something out, and then, like you said, it's pretty rare. It's pretty rare. Are you a repair shop owner? Do you find yourself struggling with any of the following? 
uncertainty about the future and competition? Are you spending too much time managing chaos and struggling with new employees? Do you lack time to invest in learning best practices or there's no time to spend on effective marketing? How do your finances look? Are you reactive rather than proactive? Do you know where you should be, when to grow, when to shrink? If any of those situations describe where you are today, you are finally in the right place. Repair Shop of Tomorrow is Napa Auto Care's newest endorsed partner. They are helping shops all over the nation run more profitable automotive repair shops by utilizing proven business best practice marketing and coaching to leverage Napa programs to drive quality, car count, sales, and profits. Repair Shop of Tomorrow will look at productivity, efficiencies, effective labor rate, average hours per car, labor profit percentage, measure and manage labor, and how you can create net profit. Team up with coaches to create systems, operations, and procedures using a business flowchart to help you reach your goals. Repair Shop of Tomorrow will help measure and manage the results to help each business succeed. Best of all, it's not do-it-yourself. It's all done for you. Their goal is to help dealers do what they do best, fix cars and build relationships at the counter and in the community. Repair Shop of Tomorrow will take the other minutiae off your plate. The Repair Shop of Tomorrow offers a tier-based program to not only generate more business today, but to transform your shop into a top-level shop of tomorrow. Repair Shop of Tomorrow can teach you how to make your shop profitable. They can teach you how to recruit and how to make more labor dollars for your shop. Interested in Repair Shop of Tomorrow? Call 440-545-1230 for a free 20-minute no-obligation consultation or contact your servicing Napa Auto Parts store. We're talking about circuit loading. Another, I think, worthy of bringing up is kind of the opposite side of things a little bit, where you can use the current flow through a circuit to power a light to help you find an issue. So if you have a short, a short to Mm -hmm. ground, something that's popping fuses, yep, 10 amp fuse, you could probably stick a, a headlight. You wouldn't really need to. You can put your 3157, 3156, whatever, you know, bulb in that few amp range. You could stick that in there. And now it's nice and bright and it's pulling current. Mm -hmm. And then using your wiring schematic, go around and try to, you know, disconnect connectors or components or, you know, wiggling harnesses. You've tried to save to the bitter end because that can get to be one of those things where it was broke. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now it's fixed. <laughs> I thought the issue is in this area. <laughs> I don't think so anymore. Yeah. But definitely fix some problems uh, unintentionally before. <laughs> yeah. and, and some people will put like little speakers or those alarms, you know, so it whines oh, yeah. while they're looking. I, I, bought a, I bought a bag of buzzers. And the reason I did it was I had a short to ground on, it was a flatbed tow truck. It was so far away from the fuse box that I couldn't see my test light, like even if I wanted to. And uh, so I bought these little buzzers. It was like a bag of them for, I don't know, 20 bucks or something. And um, you, it was super loud, but you could hear it. And that was that was how I was finding the, the short to ground. But yeah, it's, <laughs> it depends on the situation that you're in, I guess. Yeah, it works out. Works out really well. We probably would be remiss not to at least mention the uh, Load Pro leads. Mm-hmm. I don't have them. I've never had them. 
Yeah, I've never owned any myself. I don't foresee getting them, although I do see the appeal. I had actually just had somebody on the podcast that was talking about those leads, but I've, I've never owned any myself. I've seen them used and I, I get the idea, but my bulbs usually do the trick, I guess. Uh, for- That's what I do. So if you're not familiar with the load prod leads, they plug into your meter or scope if you uh, have bananas, uh, jacks or adapters. And what they do is they have a button on them. And you use them like any other test lead, but then you can hit the button and it loads down the circuit. I think it's around an amp, if Mm. I remember right. I I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. You're there with the meter already. You're doing the voltage drop testing. You want to kind of make sure it can flow some current. You can hit it that, hit the button. It'll load it down. You're not looking at current. You're looking at voltage and does it, you know, the bottom fallout of it. I definitely see the appeal. Like Sean, you know, I'm usually using light bulbs of some sort of test light, jumper wires and a probe of some sort, like an acupuncture probe, AES wave acupuncture probe, I'll back probe something. Or if I'm going to pierce, I take care of it with a liquid electrical tape. Yeah, I do pierce. Yeah. Uh, same, in Minnesota, and I pierce. <laughs> yeah, it's... It makes the most sense in a lot of situations. I, I have a question to maybe maybe derail this, but it m- might kind of be along the same lines, depending on the answer. Okay, I so... I think the name of the podcast is Derailing the Aftermarket Data. <laughs> no, it's Diagnosing. You're right. <laughs> all right, all right. So um, it, it's, it's kind of like that coil thing last time. It stems from the, the education world, and you start, re- like trying to teach this stuff and then you ask more questions like well why okay so and actually this is relevant to something i talked about just a little bit ago so i said a a fuel level sensor right how many wires do does a typical fuel level sensor use in your experience i would say two yeah so you got two wires and what would that sensor be called potentiometer is that what you mean well is it are you looking for are you potentiometer or rheostat see that's what i'm thinking is rheostat right okay and the name i guess could be debatable and it doesn't really matter for my question yeah i think typically typically potentiometer is used for very low current flow and their position sensors yeah or angle sensors or maybe like speed of, of something I don't not like rotating around but sweeping. Yep. So they right. measure the speed of that. Rheostats typically are more current flow control. So they're in control of lighting or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Lighting, maybe, you know, thermostatic sure. for old style thermostat control for houses and. I think maybe in the old days with the old gauges, it was probably more of a rheostat. And now with the new sensors, it would be more of a potentiometer. Okay. And that's how I would dodge that. <laughs> the, the, well, okay. And that's, uh, that's not even my question. The name could be debatable. And I, I would be fine to you know, give up on that. Fine. We'll call it a potentiometer with two wires, whatever. My question is, they do this very effectively. And I realize there are some applications where there's three wires, but I would say the majority going into a fuel tank to measure 
the level of something, right? Just a resistive track with a wiper is two mm-hmm. wires. Why don't they do that with every other three wire potentiometer on the car, like a throttle or an accelerator pedal or an old EGR or anything that you're using a potentiometer that has three wires? Now you might say, well, it's, what a big, what's the big deal? But what's a wire made of copper on a million vehicles? That's a million dollars. Like, why use three when you could use two? And I, I don't have a good answer for it, but I've thought about that as we're going through our fuel system course. I'm like, well, here's our fuel level sensor. It uses two. It does the same thing as these other sensors we're talking about, but it does it with two wires. So why use that third wire? I don't know. I don't, I don't know where I would do the research, but I do find that to be an interesting question. It's like, I don't even want to answer because this is totally off the cuff. Like, there's zero preparation on this. Yeah, I like to just spring stuff on so you. So I'm trying to think. <laughs> well, I'm trying to think of diagnostics, meaning a lot of those you can have coding for open and short and whatever. And I think you still code the two wire. That's interesting because you, you do for the because they use it for the EVAP. That's why it's routed to the PCM in a lot of cases. And they're using it for a critical sensor for emission stuff, but they still use a two wire. Again, yeah. not in every single application, but most. That is a very interesting question because I think what's the advantage over or three over two? Well, I guess I'm wondering about, I'm just wondering about when it comes down to actual cost, you know, and complexity. Mm -hmm. And then, okay. You say the cost, like, let's say the cost isn't that big of a deal. Well then why only use two in the tank? Is it something about safety? And uh, that was my guess is like, is there something about, you know, you're sending electrical, you know, potential into an atmosphere with flammable substance, but that's obviously not a problem. No. <laughs> you know, we're running a DC brush motor in there. We're fine. They spark so, like crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of was thrown out the window. That is a really interesting question. We noticed it going through the diagrams, you know, in the engine course and then in the fuel course. I don't know. Maybe we have to call it a rheostat and then bail. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's essentially doing the same thing, right? Because it's exactly, exactly. There's, a, there's going to be a pull up or pull down resistor in the module, whatever that is. Probably yep. the PCM if we're talking about fuel level mm-hmm. because of EVAP. Mm-hmm. So it's not like directly, you know, going into sending this voltage into the circuit board. It's uh, affecting a pull up or pull down that a comparator a comparator is across. Mm-hmm. I have to think about this. This is kind of interesting. What would be the difference? There seems to be a pattern to it, but nothing that I can identify as why. Because you're right, it does the same thing. It does. Yeah. It does the exact same thing. But then, why can't it that why why don't we use that to do? throttle position or yeah again any other potentiometer and i and i do realize for anybody listening that a lot of throttle position sensors now are hall effects but for years and years potentiometers and we still use them in places so yeah i mean i don't want to bail but i kind of want to shelve it so i can research it or if somebody listening knows can just email me yeah i bet you somebody listening knows i will not tell anybody that you emailed me i won't give out any (laughs) names i won't mention you that you told me (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and in a future podcast, I will tell tell Sean why. But, but no, seriously, if you do know, 
reach out. I'll we'll give you I'll give you all the credit. Yeah, I kind of now I want to go find out. All right, uh, I'm just gonna hit the stop button. Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> I'm out. Gotta go. Gotta go look into this now. <laughs> Thanks for killing yet another night of sleep, jerk. <laughs> I Why do I invite you thing. on? Every time I invite you on, I just <laughs> no sleep that night. Here's more work. How do they do this that? on this coil? I don't know. <laughs> Two sleepless nights to find out. Why? 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 <laughs> <laughs> but why? But why? <laughs> oh yeah. But yeah, that's what's fun about it. Learning this stuff and trying to figure it out. So yeah, long story short, go to Napa. I Hopefully they'll hear this podcast and have a sale on bulbs for technicians for testing purposes. Exactly. Wire some of them up with alligator clips and uh, you'll sell a boatload of them. Yeah. I mean, they're, it's a necessary, necessary tools. They're right right up there with everything else. I I can can remember um, it would be like the sec, technically we'll say technically the third shop I worked at that I had a vehicle in with oxygen sensor heater codes. I was under there with a headlight testing them, turning them on and off the heaters on and off with the scan tool. And, uh, I mean, they're looking at me like I was not not so, I mean, they're right. I am, but (laughs) I thought it was a good test. Uh, I verified that indeed everything was there needed to, fire up them heaters so the oxygen sensors in this occasion did fix the car <laughs> <laughs> yeah and, and our and especially in the you hate to say just the midwest because i don't know who all uses salt but that seems to be a big deal oh yeah well they say the rust belt for a reason yeah so it, it's a common practice for us to load test everything if we go back in time and this this would be this would predate me technically, but General Motors, if you were going to replace an engine control module, and mm-hmm. this was back in the days of um, probably the late '80s, early '90s, where the test was open up the glove box, get a really really long screwdriver or pry bar, and with the engine running, smack the engine control module a few times, and if the vehicle stuttered or stalled. Sure. It needed a control module. I think I remember that on Chevy Luminous. That was the test. Yeah. Give it a good smack and see if the engine stalled. Yeah. And before you would replace it, you were instructed as a dealer tech. And then, you know, in the indie side, I kind of wanted to do my due diligence too, is you were to load test all those circuits uh, mm-hmm. with your, you know, so you'd monitor the uh, current or in this case, you know, using a bulb of whatever load test it that way but to verify those actuated circuits could flow current mm-hmm. and and then of course you know depending on what it was i guess we're talking about pre thermally protected drivers or transistors if you will quad drivers sure that the um an actuator a shorted actuator would smoke mm-hmm. the uh, driver or the module the transistor so you could plug in the new one and kill it so you wanted to verify shorts and that was definitely where you would be um using your ammeter you can even take this like understanding of what you're doing 
with a with a bulb or some sort of load to other sides or you know other problems that you're diagnosing. This was another one again with students who were trying to figure this stuff out for the first time. So we were talking about five volt reference, and let's say the five volt reference is shorted to ground, which happens from time to time. It's not an uncommon thing, whether it be a sensor or a wire, or whatever. A five volt reference might get shorted to ground. How do you tell if a five volt? Or how do you tell if any wire, for that matter, is shorted to ground, like straight to ground? Like what? What's your check? Like how do you know? Do you take a meter and oh, there's zero volts? Well, is that zero volts or is that ground? Yep, right. Yep. And take your test light, power it up, touch it to the wire. If it lights up, you know that is a direct short to ground because again, you understand the the rules of the game. And, yep. and that that has to be what's happening if that bulb lights up. And, and that's, I think, what it comes back to a lot of the time is just understanding these rules. If you can get them down, then you, then you can apply it with your testing. And it's, yeah, it's almost like cheating, I think, once you really understand this stuff. To, that's a, yeah, but that's a really good thing you brought that up. You know, because you can be scoping something and just say something stupidly simple. Just Mm -hmm. a brake light switch, right? And when you hit the brakes, it drops down to zero or close to zero. Mm -hmm. Probably zero. If you're really not paying attention, drops down to zero, but the brake lights aren't coming on. So in your situation, like what you said, that you have to do the next step. The scope Mm -hmm. wasn't enough. Now, Mm -hmm. I suppose you could put a current probe on and that would do the same but you could just grab a, a light of some sort, test light, whatever, load that circuit. I do that mm-hmm. all the time. I'm glad you brought that up because that's something I do all the time is zero volts doesn't necessarily mean a good ground. Right. Is it nothing or is it ground? 12 volts, depending on where it is and when it is, may not necessarily be good under load. I have to load test it. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's if I'm checking a power feed, but it's not getting pulled like there's no load why well, I'm, I'm not proving anything so my test doesn't mean squat it means i i have open circuit voltage there for sure it's not completely open now i have to load it might be a, you know a test light or whatever one of my various bulbs i'm glad you brought that up because i i do that all the time well another one that's interesting this doesn't happen too often but where your meter or your scope is actually enough of a load uh, on uh, so a circuit that has extremely high resistance for whatever reason and your scope or meter becomes a a measurable load in the circuit i i I remember one of the times i ran into that i was so confused was it a gm vent solenoid by chance i don't recall what it was but i was like it it didn't make any sense to me because i didn't consider my measuring device as a load on the circuit but i was it was like getting I, I'm setting this up poorly for anybody who's listening audio, but maybe you can explain it better. But I think I was getting like three volts and I'm, I was like, why? I don't understand. I don't get it. No. Your measuring device is actually taking a very small amount of current out of that circuit as well. And if the resistance is high enough, now all of a sudden your measuring device is actually affecting the voltage in that circuit. I've seen it on General Motors uh, vent valves. Specifically okay. on cars like the ones in the where they're back on the driver's side uh, rear wheel well, mm-hmm. the first one if you're not if you don't know about it it's a mind job. Mm-hmm. 
because you're ta- you got your meter back there or your scope. In this case, it was a scope. And most scopes that I can think of offhand, their impedance is like a hundred K ohm. Maybe a couple of them out there are maybe one mega ohm. Their impedance is you know one mega ohm. Some of them are less. I'm not sure I can think of one that's 10 mega ohm. I don't think Snap-on is. I should look. But generally, they're like one mega ohm or less. So a lab scope and a, a digital storage oscilloscope will load a circuit slightly more than a voltmeter or mm-hmm. digital multimeter. Those, for the most part, almost all of them are 10 mega ohms. And what that means is they just they don't load the circuit very much. But if you have an actuator like a vent valve, that's failed high resistance. It's not open. Mm-hmm. It's high resistance, and it's twenty mega ohm. All of a sudden, you back probe it, and you got good power feed, and you back probe the the control side of it before mm-hmm. you're actuating it, and it's reading one volt, zero volts, or or close to zero volts, three volts in your case. Yeah, and then maybe you grab the scan tool and you command it on, and it drops down to you know mm-hmm. a couple you know, 250 millivolts or, you know, quote unquote zero volts. And then you let off and it goes back up to like three volts and you're like, what? Yeah. What's going on here? <laughs> and you check your feed voltage again and it's, you know, 12 volts or 13 volts, whatever. And, and it can be a bit of a mind job. What the heck? You know, and when I did it, I had the scope. So then it's like, wow, my scope loading it down that much. And I go grab a voltmeter and the voltage was different. It was hot. Sure. The voltage is higher. So, my scope was pulling it down pretty darn good. My voltmeter, not quite as much. And it's like, that's insane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then if you measured it, you know, OL. Yep. And it, it turns out it's the the resistance was high enough, like you said, where now your meter is enough to create a path Yep. to complete the circuit. And it's not enough to actuate anything. Nothing being actuated, but... Right, right. It, it it all comes back to understanding what you're you're doing with your test method, right? When I'm testing this, when I'm doing this with a test light or a bulb or an ohmmeter or a voltmeter, you got to know what you're doing with that test. Like, what are you actually doing to the circuit? What's actually happening when you're connecting this thing? And it is important to know, like, at least to understand when I connect this, what I am doing, and then let's measure it and see what's happening. But if you don't really understand what's happening when you put that test light on there, you're at a disadvantage. Like it's so important to know. On the flip side, very similar vehicle setting of vent valve codes, vent valve circuit codes. It may not be circuit codes. I think it might've actually just been a P0446 now that I think about it. But the part of it being a general motors means nothing, but to be accurate is another general motors. And I had one of my younger techs looking at it and I said, well, you know, you want to, verify that it's working back there. So you go back there with the scan tool and turn it on and off. Do you hear the click? No. Okay. Are you ready to slam a vent valve at it? No, I better check power feed and ground. I'm like, oh, what are you going to use? It's like, oh, you know, I've seen you do this stuff. I'm going to grab a light bulb. Attaboy. Goes and grabs his headlight. Okay. (laughs) It doesn't turn the headlight on. So he's like, oh man. Comes and gets me and I'm looking at it like, yeah, yeah. Remarkably, you still have 12 volts power feed there. It just couldn't flow enough. 
Uh-huh. Okay, okay, okay. You got <laughs> way too much load on this circuit. For fun, let's see if we can find a specification on the resistance of this vent valve. And it's, you know, whatever, 30-some ohms, I think. So that's going to be, you know, roughly a half an amp. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's... <laughs> so we we went from a headlight bulb to a 194, and it would uh-huh. light that up just fine. And yeah. I'm like, okay, so... I, you know, you got to learn just why you wouldn't use this 194 bulb to check your that fuel pump circuit. The flip side, you're not going to use the headlight bulb to check this vent valve circuit. That's that's a great example. Yeah, knowing what tool to to use for the job. I'm just thinking too here. The control modules now we have to be aware are also looking at that too. And yep. if they don't like what you put in place, I'll just shut down the driver. They'll say yep. nope. That resistance ain't right. I don't like it. Too too high or too low. And it'll just shut it down. I had a Volkswagen AC compressor where I was just putting a test light in place to see if it light up the test light. Nope, didn't like my test light. And the circuit code's the giveaway. But still, like we got to be aware the modules are watching this stuff too. I had that on a Volkswagen relay coil even. That was really sensitive. Yeah, I broke down and bought the special tool. If we're talking about the same compressors, I, I went and bought that Four Seasons tester. Okay. Okay. If we're talking about the solenoid controlled one, yeah, it's in like it a doesn't G- have a GTI clutch. or Golf or something. Yep. Yeah. Yep, variable. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I just went and bought the tester, so it, okay, it'll it tees into it. It measures the resistance, and then you can you have a choice. You can watch the uh, module controlling it, and mm-hmm. then you can take over control. Oh no, kidding! And, and drive it, and oh. yeah, I, maybe they're less expensive now. It wasn't cheap when I got it, but darn it. We see enough Volkswagens and Audis, and, and not just them anymore. Like more and more going to the variable, do they call them variable displacement compressors? Yeah. That um, yeah, exactly. Well, clutchless. Yeah, they they had the yep. variable displacement with the clutches, but then yeah, yeah I know, right? Clutchless. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I just broke down and bought it. Four Seasons Clutch. makes one. I think there's another one. I didn't even know there was a tool. Let's check uh, that out. You know, I sit on a freaking computer. I could just as well <laughs> look it up instead of, oh, wow, there's all kinds of them now. Ooh. So I have the Four Seasons one. Robin Air has one. Oh, okay. They do not They do not look the same. The Robin Air versus the Four Seasons. I have the Four Seasons one. It's been very good to me. Okay. Use it on more than just uh, Volkswagen Audi. Like I said, you know, you plug it in and like you don't run into that situation like you're talking about where... They just shut it down. Yeah. There's certain modules I think are more sensitive to that than others. Some uh, mid-2000 Chrysler modules seem to be just overly sensitive to open circuits and shutting on down drivers. And it's for testing purposes, it makes it just a bear to get yeah. through that stuff. Because if you don't have the proper resistance in place, the output state driver just shuts it down for you. And like, I just want to make sure the computer's good. <laughs> like, come on, help me out here a little bit. Yeah, it's, you wish there would be just more of that, more bi-directional controls, more ways to do bi-directional controls, key on engine off, key on engine running. Mm-hmm. Just make it easier to pull the trigger on a lot of this. Man, start another podcast just on this. Get me going about yeah stuff they should let me, let us do with their scan tools. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I want to be able to do anything I want. Yeah, we, need to, we need to trim some fuel out of it in this spot here. 
<laughs> yeah, let me get into that fuel map. I guess I have a scan tool that might do that. HP tuners might uh, get in there. <laughs> well, sir, thank you very, very much for coming on again. Thank you, thank for you very me. much for talking about this with me. I enjoyed it as always. So thank you for having me. All right. That's Sean Tipping, everyone. The Automotive Diagnostic Podcast. Also a instructor at Century College and also a mobile diagnostic technician and a huge fan of hockey. <laughs> it's true. It is true. I think I make it up. A game on Sunday. <laughs> Your game or? Yeah. We're not doing so hot this year, but we'll keep trying. Like most Minnesota sports teams. <laughs> <laughs> on par with most <laughs> Minnesota sports teams. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Take care. Yeah. You've been listening to Matt Fonslow diagnosing the aftermarket A to Z on the Aftermarket Radio Network. Follow Matt on your favorite listening app. He's very interested in what you have to say. Let him know what you'd like him to cover and come on the show. Matt is all for advancing the aftermarket. Find Matt Fonslow on social media and connect or on aftermarketradionetwork.com.